1: Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the extra show where we race through the big issues of the week. I'm Connor Pope and I'm joined today by my colleague Hannah Shah. This is my last episode on the Progressive Britain podcast. So we should start with with the the big the big news. Um, Big news of the week. Yeah, which is that you're going to be the, the host of the Progressive Britain podcast from now on.
2: That is true. So I am sad, but also quite happy. Please don't leave me, listeners.
1: <laughs> um, well, the Alistair Campbell episode a couple of weeks ago is now our most listened to episode ever. So, you know, just want to put it out there that we're leaving you in pretty good standing at the moment. Um, with I think it was, uh, it was Uncle Ben in Spider-Man, who said that with great power comes great responsibility. So, you know, be careful.
2: I will do. I will do. (laughs) At least now I have some numbers to beat, did not I?
1: Yeah, this feels a bit like um, when Doctor Who regenerates. I don't know if it does feel like that. I've never actually seen Doctor Who. I didn't like
2: Doctor Who, but I like David Tennant.
1: Cool. So I don't know if that was a a relevant um, point to make, but it felt like it. I think it it
2: is, because basically what happens is, for example... David Tennant's a great doctor, and then I stopped watching Doctor Who because the guy afterwards was some newfangled, like, cooler version, and I was like, that person's crap.
1: So Matt Smith, this is the last time I'll ever be able to shoehorn in a mostly irrelevant Blackburn Rovers reference into this podcast. Matt Smith, the doctor who came after uh, David Tennant, is a Blackburn Rovers fan. Isn't that great? I, I genuinely, nowhere in this script... Had I been planning to get in a Blackburn reference? And there we go. I've managed to get one in. managed
2: to get one in. Always anyway. do.
1: Anyway, so this week I've just finished editing my last issue of Progress Magazine, um, which, to be honest, has made for quite a long final week of <laughs> Progress. Um, <laughs> a few quite late nights. Um, but I'm really pleased with the issue. It's going to be out with subscribers next week. Um, and it's all about how the path to staying in the European Union is still open and what the route could be to a public vote on Brexit. Um, So I'm really pleased with it. I think it's really, really interesting. Um, If you want to uh, get the magazine sent to you, do go and join progress at prog.rs forward slash join from as little as £3 a month. Hannah, what articles did you think caught your eye in this issue?
2: So as per usual, it's all about Brexit, but I think (laughs) it's an escapeful topic at the moment. Um, I... As a sort of a little bit of an economics nerd, um, I think my favourite article had to be Alison's um, about the case against a left-wing exit and the nostalgia of really sort of crap state-led socialism and why, one, we can't achieve it if we leave the EU and two, why it's not a great idea anyway.
1: Yeah, so this is uh, Alison McGovern article who I'm sure listeners will be familiar with, Alison. <laughs> Who's um, she? But um, yeah, her piece really was great. It, and it was partly based on an excellent um, kind of myth-busting uh, report that the Labour campaign for the single market mm-hmm. did about 18 months ago, which um, I'll stick that in the links underneath this podcast because it, it was really interesting. And, and that was formed the basis for this article um, another uh, article I thought was really good was, um, which is actually up on the website now, mm. was Claire Teig from uh, the Labour Irish Society. Um, and she's written about why the backstop actually is really important. And that's something really interesting this week because Jeremy Corbyn certainly um, kind of implied during his media rounds after he met with Theresa May this week that actually Labour was kind of against the backstop and a Labour deal. Uh, on Brexit could be reached without the need for a backstop, which I just don't think is true. I
2: I don't see how you can reconcile getting rid of the backstop and not having a hard border in Ireland, mm. or sort of keeping to the six tests that we've outlined and that Keir Starmer discussed. What was really interesting was that when he met May in the Commons and not in number 10, which was a great um, piece of staging by (laughs) May's team, uh, he took in, I think it was Seamus Milne and Carrie Murphy, but not Keir Starmer, um, which sort of signals where he's moving to as being it seems a bit further away from what was actually agreed at conference and what the Labour members are asking for and actually towards a more Brexity version of mm-hmm. policy that doesn't really look like the members want, to be honest.
1: Because this week, I know it feels to a lot of people that actually it's been a tough week for pro-Europeans, especially with the Evatt Cooper amendment mm-hmm. um, failing to pass in Parliament. Uh, and that would have given... MPs the option in a few weeks' time of, of basically delaying uh, Article 50 so that we didn't crash out on March 29th uh, without a deal. And essentially that is something that Labour has been really hesitant to say mm. whether we'll be doing that. But you were saying Jeremy Hunt has, has actually been saying yeah, from so the Tory side. Yeah,
2: sort of he's made noises that we may now have to extend Article 50. Because if you look, I think the Institute for Government brought out a report... Was it today that basically said out of um, a number of, I think it was 11 policy areas, they um, analyzed about eight of them just simply weren't ready for a no deal. Mm. And then I think today in the House, the Department for Education said that in an event, uh, in the event of a no deal Brexit, that uh, the standards for school lunches would have to be ignored um so it may be back to turkey twizzlers <laughs> and frozen food for uh the children of britain if we can't get them some nice fresh food
1: jamie oliver is going to be fuming i know um they quite like turkey twizzlers uh, yeah. uh Rich, richard corbett who's the um leader of the labor group in uh the european parliament um he's written a really interesting piece about postponing the Article 50 Mm -hmm. deadline um, in which he kind of sets out what the different options are, how late you could delay it, what would happen to MEPs, uh, because obviously there is European elections coming up this May and new MEPs have to be in place by the 2nd of July, which basically some people seem to think that then delaying Article 50 could only go on to... July the 1st, because otherwise we'll have to carry out European elections. He makes a really interesting point in here that actually maybe what if the UK delayed it and then just didn't have the elections until things are sorted out, which I think is actually really interesting. The EU isn't in the end going to kind of just boot us out and it would cause some legal problems possibly, but there is the kind of possibility that actually the EU will be okay just to overlook that while Britain sorts out Brexit.
2: Um, yeah, but the question does not arise, what happens to the MEPs who exist already? Are they going to stay in Brussels? So from what I understand of it, the way that the parliament's made up is based on the population that your country has. So our mm. MEPs have already actually been proportionally assigned to other member nations. Mm. So if we still have MPs, MEPs, in the parliament, either ones who've had their terms extended or newly elected ones, what they're gonna to do to stand at the back? The whole thing seems a bit well, awkward to be honest. So
1: his point is that if Europe allowed the failure of Britain to organise new elections to paralyze the European mm. Parliament, then essentially what you're saying is that the other 27 countries, any of them, could then choose to mm. simply paralyze all European legislation uh, by not organising elections and and hold the EU, uh, you know, kind of um, mm. hostage in that situation. So, yeah, it is, it is a kind of, like, kind of out-there suggestion, but I thought it was really interesting uh, and wasn't something that I'd really considered. Mm. The What Britain Thinks of Brexit article, what did you make of that?
2: I thought it was interesting. I think what... It shows really clearly. It's quite... So Sorry,
1: I should probably explain. Yeah, there's what a, it is. De- Deborah Mattinson and Tom Clarkson from Britain, Britain Thinks, mm. uh, the, the uh, pollsters, have written um, five things that we should know about uh, Brexit based on their recent research, which includes focus groups that took place after uh, Theresa May's withdrawal agreement defeat a couple of weeks ago. Um, sorry, carry on. <laughs>
2: no, they've um, essentially identified... Four groups, haven't they? Um, which are basically, I can't remember the names now.
1: Um, so there's, okay. there's uh, devastated Brexit pessimists. Yeah, it's me. Uh, that's 33% of people. 30% of people are at the other end of the spectrum, diehard Brexiters. And then there are 16% who are cautious optimists uh, about Brexit. And 12% of people are accepting pragmatists about Brexit.
2: Yeah, I think what's interesting about that is you can see... The significant polarization between the sort of die-hard Brexiteers and the Romaniacs, mm. as I think we like to call ourselves, <laughs> um, on the two sides of the spectrum. But I think what's and I think that's something that we can see in our discourse and in the media as being something that's, to be honest, pretty apparent. Um, but what actually interested me out of that was that 83% of people think that the establishment has failed them. Mm. on Brexit.
1: Yeah, I thought I thought that was really fascinating. And that actually um, people don't really now trust politicians to carry out Brexit in any sort of fashion. Uh, uh, and I think actually that makes a really good argument for having a public vote on, mm. on Brexit and, and letting the public be the people who essentially control this process a bit more because clearly they don't have the trust in Westminster at the moment to do that. Um, finally... On that note, I wrote a long piece about um, the People's Vote campaign, um, which uh, basically I kind of wanted to look at why and how um, something that felt like such an outsider opinion only a year ago has been legitimised so quickly. Um, And it really feels like there has been a push on that over the past year. Um, A lot of people... The People's Vote campaign essentially comes in for a lot of criticism, I think. Um, And people say that it's not run very well, all this kind of thing. But actually, I think they've had a remarkable success over the past nine months. Mm -hmm. The campaign was only founded in April. And I think a lot of the criticism it gets is from people who do not want there to be, who do not want the campaign to be successful. And that is either because They don't want there to be a referendum uh, and they want Brexit to happen. Or, and more interestingly, some of the criticism I think comes from people who don't want the campaign to be successful because that would go against their analysis of the current political Mm -hmm. situation. They don't think a public vote on Brexit is possible and therefore they oppose it for that political reasoning. And they feel that the people who are involved in running the People's Vote campaign, who, as as the uh, as the article explains, are largely people who've worked in Labour Party politics mm-hmm. uh, at some point over the past kind of fifteen years or so, and so actually they want to paint these people as losers yeah. who cannot be successful and can't cultivate messages that cut through with the public, mm. and they want to do that essentially because they want to tighten their own grip on the yeah. Labour Party and to do that they need to show that the other people the people that they oppose within the Labour Party are losers and I think what we're seeing is that just simply isn't true
2: No, I completely agree I think that's what's really interesting about the campaign is I'm sure we can have a really long discussion about everything that's right and wrong with it and I know that I've sort of had my criticism of, criticisms of it before but mm. it's one of the few situations where you can see a fairly new idea being attacked really substantially from both the left and right, both quite aggressively from groups which are well funded, have a good connection to the media, and also political capital. Mm. So, actually, being stuck in the middle with the people's vote isn't necessarily uh, as bad a thing as it could be at the moment.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Claire Tighe's piece is online now. No. We'll put a link to that. In the notes underneath this episode, all of the rest of the articles will be sent out in the magazine to subscribers next week and will be going online over the next couple of weeks as well. Uh, remember, if you do want to join progress, it is prog.rs forward slash join. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or ACAST. And the Progressive Britain podcast will be back on Tuesday next week but I will not. <laughs> As always, thank you, Hannah. And best of luck with the podcast. I'm sure it's going to be absolutely brilliant. I've,
2: I'm sure I need it.
1: I've got my uh, subscribe button ready to go because at the moment, I just don't listen back to them. One <laughs> uh, <but,
2: laughs> well, more listener, we are already doing better than you. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs>
1: uh, but yeah, best of luck with the podcast. It's going to be brilliant. Uh, and thank you everyone for listening over the past 18 months. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music is When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And this episode was produced by Carolyn Crampton.
0: Planning for your next trip?